All right, if you have your Bibles tonight, please take them out and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 11 tonight, and um, starting in verse 17. The plan is uh, just to get through chapter 11, so um, not a lot of territory we're going to cover tonight, but uh, important territory nonetheless. And um, next week, we start looking at the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. So I didn't want to um, do half of 11 and then start getting into that. We need a full runway as we get into the spiritual gifts. So looking forward to that. If uh, anybody, we just need a few people after service to hang out and uh, move some chairs for the chili cook-off that's um, this weekend. Uh, has anybody seen the video that the police department did? Yeah. Show your hands if you've seen it. Yeah. Okay, so if you haven't seen it, go to the um, Flower Mound Police Department or social media. There's a little video. It's kind of a funny video about the chili cook-off. But anyway, I met with um, Officer Johnson uh, yesterday, and he's the one that's kind of coordinating everything, and um, they're really excited to come. It's going to be a, just a really good opportunity for our church to reach out, one, to the police department, two, to the community. Uh, we don't know how many people are going to come. It's hard to say in something like this, but uh, he is anticipating a lot of people coming through here. So um, we need to put our best foot forward and just show the love of Christ and um, talk to people and let them know we're here for them. Uh, so a tremendous opportunity, really, that um, they selected us to host that event. Uh, keep that in prayer as well. And um, that's pretty much it. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to pick it up in verse 17. And We've been looking at a, a church, you really could just write a, write a book today about the modern church, and it would look like the Corinthian church. Uh, this church had become worldly. They sort of moved away from the things that Paul taught them, the things that they were established upon, the firm foundation that was laid by Paul, which he laid and got from Christ. And so he was passing that on. And as Paul was moving through there, he spent 18 months ministering there and establishing the church. And when he left, uh, by the time he was writing this letter, it had been about five years, and uh, they had just really gone their own way. And that's something that the church is always fighting against. And it's, uh, it's as, as if every new generation, they want, it, want the church to be their own thing. So it's okay to do that as long as you're not throwing out the main thing. So the main things, they don't change. The stuff around that, that can change. There's different, you know, we don't dress like Paul dressed. And, you know, we looked at last week about the, the uh, head coverings and things like that, those cultural issues. So the 
principle behind those issues, they don't, they don't change. And Satan attacks the church in very similar ways. And we see, like, if you go through the Old Testament, especially read the prophets, and you'll be amazed at the, the parallels even, say, like the church at Corinth has with the nation of Israel when the nation of Israel was judged, when they were taken away to Babylon, and also when the Assyrians took them away. And it's just this, it's, it's always a drifting away, like we talked about at our men's ministry, but it's always just a, a, a drifting away, uh, thinking that there's something more or something better or our culture has evolved so much where the things of the Bible are irrelevant or not as important and then we start to substitute the things of the world through the things that never change, the Word of God. We have a tendency to want to spice up the Word of God, spice up the gospel, and whenever we're doing that, we're just tainting it and making it weaker. When Paul went to Corinth, he said, I, I didn't come with persuasive words, but it was a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I'm, I'm excited next week to get into looking at the spiritual gifts and things like that. That's always one of those issues in the church where people are divided on and confused about and things like that. And I think there's a reason for that because it's the power of the Holy Spirit that we operate in, which is the strength of the church. So that's the power. And when we move away from that or dilute it or think that we can do things better our way, or what's really common is just substituting something that we do and calling it the Holy Spirit. When we do that, then we're diminishing the power of the work of God. And so the church at Corinth, very similar to a lot of the problems that that we have, there was uh, the embracing of uh, sexual immorality, there was a unwillingness to deal with the sin that came into the church, which needs to happen. The church needs to maintain its purity. There was divisions among the people, and it, got, it was acceptable. It was one thing to have a quarrel or dispute or a problem with somebody, but it's not okay as a, a believer to be okay with that. So they were okay with that. They were... They were striving against one another. They weren't pulling in the same direction, which means that they're still self-centered. They're still in it for themselves. And to be following Jesus, what do we have to do? We have to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Him. So being a Christian is denying ourselves. They were full of themselves. And because they were full of themselves, they were divided. They were against each other. There were different sections of people in the church. You might call them cliques or things like that. Some people thought they were better than other people because of their station in life. So we looked at last week how another very modern relative problem was coming into their church, and that was uh, they were blending roles. They were blending the 
roles of male and female, of authority. They just wanted to do away with that. Uh, it seems noble to want get to get rid of distinctions and roles, but Paul said that's how God set things up, even within the Godhead. Even Jesus had a certain role, God the Father had a certain role, and the Holy Spirit had a certain role, all equal but yet different roles. And so whenever you see a, a push, usually we'll call it feminism or something like that. There's a push for the doing away of roles and the distinctions even of the sexes. So that was a problem too. They were sort of wanting to, the men were wanting to look more effeminate and having a, a more of a effeminate way that they're uh, approaching life and and so it just these things are always they're always around. It's the same stuff. What we're facing in the church now is nothing new, but uh, it is it is alarming to see what's going on. It is alarming that yeah, the world's going to do that, but when the church starts doing that, then you don't have a church anymore. And so these are things that we need to push back on. We need to fight against. But for the most part, if we keep God in the center and keep his word at the center. It's going to keep those things away because you, you can't do those things while you're going through the word. The only way you can do those things is you don't have the word front and center and then man's opinions front and center. So we like to keep the word front and center and that is a hill to die on for us. And um, as long as we're here, this is what we're going to go down on. And um, the Bible says, that if we're truly a follower of God, we can't say that we are and not be doers of God's word. If we do that, we're actually a liar. So we want to be those who are always looking, keeping God's word. None of us are perfect, but we have a desire to want to walk with God. That's our desire. We're all growing in that and maturing in that. We're all at, at different levels. We need to have grace upon one another and encourage one another in the most holy things of God. But we got, we got to watch the drifting away. Otherwise, we won't be a church anymore. There are a lot of places that call themselves churches, but they're not a church. In the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3, has seven churches. And those seven churches are examples of the churches throughout the ages and the last church that you will find before Christ comes is the church at Laodicea which is the lukewarm church what is the lukewarm church they're neither hot nor cold they're just nothing and when you're not hot or cold then you're just there and then you look more like the world than anything else. And God says, I'll spew you out of my mouth if that's what it looks like. And he also says, if in those churches, if they don't repent, that he'll remove his candle stand, which means his presence. So we see many churches that name the name of Christ, but God's not there. Because if, if they don't repent, and they go after the things of the world and abominations of the world, then God's going to remove His presence. But those are signs of the times. Those are the signs of the days that we're living in. 
And it's nothing new. However, it is new for our country, the church in our country. So this, these things have been going on since the church. We see that in our text. We even see in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul's pointing to the Old Testament, you remember in chapter 10, and saying the children of Israel, their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Those were examples for us. So we, they were giving Old Testament examples. We're getting examples here now in God's Word. And so let's take a look at starting in verse 17. And you remember in chapter 11, he's, he was dealing with just certain things like head coverings. And we just pointed out that had to do uh, with authority structures. And the establishment of authority structures by God and that we are to maintain those authority structures, that authority structures are proper and good, and God created them, created them that way. So then, in verse 17, he begins to talk about another thing that was going on in the church. And I just, before we look at that, just when there's no repentance, and when one is self-centered and self-focused and pushes that, and then you have a group of people doing that, then you're going to have all sorts of problems. And the problems, you can't really even deal with the problems too well because people won't hear you. They will be mad at you if you say something, if you correct them or rebuke them. They'll be very touchy and they'll be un unwilling to listen to the things of God. And you remember, Paul said, hey, if I have to come back heavy-handed, I will do that, but I don't want to do that. That's not my preference to come back to you like that. So here we have another issue that is just a symptom of their selfish heart. In verse 17, it says, Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Now imagine that. So he's actually saying it's possible to gather together as a church, which we're supposed to do. Hebrews 10.25 commands us to not forsake the meeting of one another together, as some are in the habit of doing, but even more so as the day approaches. So gathering together is not an option if we are able to. It is commanded. But he's saying as, as they gather, it's not good. This, you're gathering and it's actually bad. I'm, I can't praise you or say that's great you're gathering. So it's, it's possible to meet together as a church, to have a church, to gather people together and it, it actually be a bad thing. And that's what he's saying. I can't praise you for your gatherings together. Why? Well, in verse 18, he says, For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. So Paul's not there, but he's getting word about it. Now, it's interesting, why does, why does he say, I believe, believe it in part? 
He doesn't know it for a fact, but he believes it in a part, probably because he knows the character of the people there and their departure from the faith, understanding, well, it makes sense because you're not dealing with the root of the problem. And when the root of the problem is not dealt with, you can expect all sorts of things to be going on. And this problem, he says in verse 19, he says, for there there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. So there's something that is very subtle in that little scripture there, but extremely important. He says there must be factions or divisions. In a sense, he's saying that in the natural development and progression of a church body, there will occur these factions. And he's saying in a way they must happen so that there can be a separation in the sense of the wheat and the chaff. He calls it the approved. So these divisions that often happen in a church, a lot of times we will think that there's something wrong with the church, and there may be, there may be, but church division in and of itself, Paul is saying that's actually a, healthy course of action because it can occur where in the church you you get those who are not really following the Lord and actually causing division because as Paul Paul called them carnal they're fleshly they're worldly and it's possible for great division to happen within the church but he's saying that that division actually testifies and proves those who are true and authentic. That it's sort of a a measuring stick. And that doesn't mean that if there's an unhealthy church that you should stay there. It's not saying that. It's not saying if a church teaches false doctrine or is heretical that you should stay there. It's not saying that. But it's saying that in a development, he's saying it must happen that in the development of the church, there's these divisions that, that must happen. It says must, and that word is, is actually in the original text. It must happen in order for those who are truly surrendered to the Lord and following Him, that they will be preserved in a way where they're not following in to the divisions that are happening in a carnal way within the church. So let me read that again just with that context. For there must there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. So in other words there's often tests that happen within a church body. 
so that those who are truly in it for the Lord and not for themselves, that they will be shown and they will be revealed in those matters and in those situations. So I have to be honest with you, I've never saw that before until this time. And I've taught this, read it, I've read it hundreds of times, I've taught it several times, I never saw that until now. It just hit me because of church divisions that do happen. And I'm thinking about John chapter 15, where it talks about pruning. And oftentimes a church body will go through pruning. And if it doesn't, and, and, and especially if sin's not dealt with, and of course we're not talking about running around and looking for people to cross the line. We're just talking about obvious, gross sin that's not dealt with in the body of Christ. The leadership needs to be committed to Christ. And those that are not in leadership, they need to be encouraged in the ways of Christ and exhorted in the ways of Christ. And that's, that's just, that's how, it's as simple as that. But there's this progression in a church as the church goes on after a time that there can be these factions that raise up and they're in it for other reasons. The Bible even says that Satan sows in tares in the middle of the night when nobody's looking and you can't tell the difference. And he says, don't just yank them out because you don't know right away, but time will reveal it. Interesting, isn't it? So, Paul is saying in this church, there's a lot of problems there, but because of what's going on, those who are truly following the Lord, they're, they're standing out, and they're being recognized. He says in verse 20, Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of the others. And one is hungry, and the other is what? Drunk. <laughs> Drunk. So that's a problem, right? So what, what's the Lord's Supper? What is he talking about the Lord's Supper? So... The Lord's Supper is here, in this context, is basically, it's, it's like what we would look at as a potluck. It's just something they regularly did, usually once a week within the church, where everybody from the church body, on one day, they would bring their own food. And so the food was meant to be shared. And then at the end of that, they would take communion. So it was kind of the, the model with Jesus and the disciples, right? They all came together, they ate, and at the end of that meal, then that's where Jesus inter, uh, introduced um, the Lord's Supper and the cup and the bread that represented the blood and the body of Christ. We're going to look at that in a second. So they're all getting together, and in Corinth, in the church especially, there was a very large divide in socioeconomic status. On one end, you would have the very rich aristocratic 
type of people who got saved. On the other end, you'd have prostitutes that got saved. And you'd have everything in between. And so what was happening is they would come to this supper and the rich people, they would be sort of in their corner or in their room and they would be eating all the lobster, the steak that they brought, um, cheese fries, <laughs> clam chowder soup. And then the poor people, they would be at the other end and they would be eating beans and rice. And they wouldn't mix. And the rich people would also have the best wine. And so they would be drinking that wine and getting drunk. And this was their service. This was how they were interacting with one another. And so the, the division that they had, that Paul had been talking about throughout the book, now it's manifesting itself within the church worship services. So they have certain people over here and certain people over here. And Paul is dealing with that particular issue. This issue is a, a symptom of the fact that they're not following the Lord and denying themselves. They're worldview has not changed, which it should when we become believers, to the extent where we understand that God has made everybody in His image full value on every single individual because they're made in the image of God. And that's why I personally have a problem when people have a white church or a black church or anything you want to put in front of church, there's, there's no such thing biblically. It's just the church. There's no white church. There's no black church. And that's why I don't believe in catering to a certain ethnicity or a cer certain walk in life to change the demographic within your church because I believe the word of God is what draws people. And we shouldn't have to manipulate and change things. And that's why if I look around in our church, we have all sorts of different people. And that blesses me because that's the way it is supposed to be. And so we should never cater a church based on ethnicity. In a sense, this is what they were doing. They were just doing it within the church and in these gatherings. And their carnality was on display in their worship. So it, it suggests that they do not fully understand who they are in Christ. They were struggling with their identity in Christ, what it meant to be a follower of Christ, what Christ has done for them, and how Christ died for them, and he came for all to be saved, not just certain people. So whenever you see any sort of racism or prejudice or any of those things, especially done in the name of Christ, that is an abomination to God, and it's wrong. 
And if, if you teach the word and if somebody's truly a believer, then the distinctions between individuals will be removed. The Bible says there's neither Jew nor Greek nor male nor female, right, nor slave nor free. In Christ, we're all one in Christ. And that is the beauty of Christianity. And so I have a hard time understanding, like in our country's history, why there were so-called Christians, but they also had slaves and things like that. It just doesn't make any biblical sense, and especially to fight for that doesn't make biblical sense. But be that as it may, the point that is being made here is that that should not exist in the body of Christ. And the thing that's really interesting is they were getting drunk. Imagine going to David and Young's for the home Bible study, and Chris is about to teach it, and they're all getting sloshed. And then I'm hearing, man, it was great. This was the best home fellowship that we've ever had. That's not going on, is it? Let me know if that's going on. But this is what they're doing. And it doesn't seem like they saw that that was a problem. And so Paul's addressing that. He says in verse 21, he says, For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of the others. And one is hungry and the other is drunk. So some of the lower... Uh, socioeconomic status people, this was an opportunity for them to eat a good meal. And the rich people were eating it before them. And it's almost like having a potluck and we all run over to get the good stuff. And we're pushing each other and shoving each other out of the way. And I, we haven't done one in a while, but I, I know like you already know the people, they have their trademark dish. And if you know they brought it, you're going to be the first one in line, but hopefully you won't after this, because the first will be last, right? And the last will be first. So in verse 22, he says, what? Do you not have houses and eat and drink in? Or do you not despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. I rebuke you. This cannot keep going on. Now, the, the issue then is, here's always the issue. What's going to happen after they hear this? That's where, where you really find out the heart of a person. Are they going to push back? Are they going to be mad at Paul? Are they going to say, forget you? Or are they going to be broken? Are they going to, going to see their sin and repent of their sin? And that's really what makes the difference. So he goes on and he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. So what is he doing now? 
So now he's telling them what the Lord's Supper should look like. In particular, the last part where they're going to take what we call communion. He's telling them that the communion that he was going to lay out sort of the and establish the, the standard of what they're doing, he says that he got that from the Lord. And then he delivered it to them. And I believe that's why it's so important that you and I are in the Word of God together as a church family. Because right now, we are all receiving what the Lord has to say. So he's given us his word. And together as a body of Christ, we receive it together. And I, to me, that is so valuable. And I, I think that's what a church should be built on. And that's what a family of God should be established in and grow together in. It's the word of God. And I have noticed that when a church does that together, it eliminates a lot of the problems that a church can have that they have to continually address individually and separately. But when as a church body you're going through the Word of God together, you're all on the same page, so to speak. We all can see it. It's not my opinion. It's not someone else's opinion. God is the authority. That's what's important. That's why the Word of God is always being challenged about its place in a body of Christ. Because when we remove the Word of God from front and center, we put ourselves in place of that. So the authority shifts from the Word of God to man. And that's why you are able to have a church that teaches overt false doctrine because the people can't see it. It's not right in front of them. They're not going through it together. And so it allows for false doctrine. Now there's different, you know, there's different applications that people have and different things. I'm, I'm talking about the essential things in the Word of God and a body of Christ that's being built on the Word of God and the authority of God, that, that God is having the authority in the church. When we're doing what we're doing right now, it's God has His authority in the church, not a person. We're all looking at what the Word says in order to do that. We're all doing that together. What does it say so I can do that? What does God want us to know? What is He revealing? And when we all do that as a body of Christ, what do you have? You have a, you have a healthy body of Christ. Why is it healthy? It's built on the Word of God. And why is that healthy? Because the Word of God endures forever. This will go through every generation. This will always be relevant. There's always talk about relevancy. You have to be relevant. Well, the Bible is always relevant. It never changes. It, it's always current. It's always alive right now. And that's the confidence that I have when I prepare to understand the Word of God and I study, I know that this is something that I can share that I know is going to last forever. That's what I want to be into. I don't want to be into speculative things. And 
If it is speculative, hopefully I'll tell you that's just speculative or speculation. But as we read God's word, we should be able to all just say, I put my life and stake my life on that. And when you have a church body, a group of people that does that, now that church body is starting to look like a light in darkness. It's starting to look like salt. It's starting to stand out and be different. And that's what we want to stand out for. We don't want to stand out for being weird or exotic or gimmicky or snazzy or whatever. We want to stand out because we're standing on the Word of God and we're humbly, humbly submitting to the Word of God being directed by the teaching of God's Word. So Paul had that confidence. you see that? He said, I'm giving you not something I made up. I'm giving you what I received. He's saying, God gave me this and I'm giving it to you. So he had that confidence. He says in verse 24, oh, let's say 23 and a half. He said that the Lord Jesus, on the same night which he was betrayed, he took bread. So as he's referring to the practice that we call communion, Lord's Supper, he is saying this is built on what Jesus did. This is not something that we have the right to make up or do our own way. Or he's saying what we do, and we do that now, we're doing, going to do that this Sunday, that this is something given to us by God to do. He says in verse 24, when he, Jesus, had given thanks, he broke it and he said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, do this in remembrance of me. So, as he establishes the parameters for communion, what we call communion. Communion means fellowship, koinonia. So, when Jesus did this, it was on the, the Passover feast. The Passover feast was when they were commemorating the children of Israel's deliverance from Egypt. And the death angel passed over them. And so from that time, the Jews every year, they would commemorate that. It would be a reminder that God delivered them through the blood applied to the doorpost and through the water. The deliverer, Moses, was a picture of Christ. And so they would look back and remember that for the reason of anticipating the future of what that would mean, the future fulfillment or the final deliverance. And so when Jesus was celebrating the Passover feast on that Passover, as they're looking back on what happened and also looking forward to what they hope would eventually happen, Jesus stood up and he passed the bread and the cup 
and he identified that he was that. Fulfilling what they were looking forward to. Fulfilling the fulfillment of a once and for all deliver. They had in their mind a different understanding of that. We have a, a, a clear understanding of that now. But now it's, it's like, okay, the issue that many people have with communion that denominations have been set up around in many cases is exactly this. So what is actually happening with the, the bread and the cup? So a Roman Catholic would say that it's literally, you're eating literally the body of Christ and it's literally his blood. So it's called transubstantiation. So in their mass, their service or ceremony, they take that communion and it has to be for them administered by the priest, then because it's the body, the literal body, and the literal blood of Christ, then they believe he has to make atonement for them over and over again. Huge problems with that. When Jesus said it is finished, he was saying there's no more sacrifice, no more atonement. This, this is it. I'm the fulfillment of all of those Old, te Old Testament pictures and types, and it's done. It is finished. There's no more atonement left. So when Jesus atoned for our sin, there's, no, there's nothing else. No more atonement. So that's a huge problem. Luther, the reformer, if you know a little bit about church history, the one who started Protestantism, so... Why do we call it Protestantism? Because he protested against the Roman Catholic Church, wrote or nailed his 93 theses or his 93 problems with the Catholic Church. Primarily, salvation is by faith and not by works. But so he moved away from transubstantiation and he had something called consubstantiation. So he didn't move that far from transubstantiation, just a little bit. Needle moved a little bit. And his thought was that Jesus is, is there in, in the bread and in the cup, but spiritually. And so he embraced that idea of, of, of Jesus being in those particular elements, just not physically, but spiritually. Then later, there came Calvin brought to the table this idea of the spiritual presence is in the communion. And that kept moving it away a little further until a Swiss reformer, Zwingli, said that it's a memorial. It's a remembrance. And it says it right here. I, I, the, it's the whole thing solved right in this verse. When Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. So it's a memorial. So communion helps us to remember what Christ has done. So when Jesus took the bread and the cup, 
He looked up into heaven and he blessed it. In other words, he was acknowledging when he did that that he was fulfilling the Father in heaven's plan. And he broke it, suggesting to us his suffering that he was going to go through at the time when he did that with the uh, disciples. But now looking back, it was his suffering that he would offer as being a sacrifice for our sins. And notice it says, take and eat, in verse 24, this is my body, which is broken for you. So a lot in there. You can talk about his incarnation when he says, this is my body. It's broken for you, meaning this is my suffering for you. Notice for you. So this is his atonement, substitutionary atonement for us. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. In verse 25, he says, in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this do as often as you drink in remembrance of me. So there it is again. And so there we have the, the picture of his sacrifice. We have the picture of him not only taking on a body, but then having his body suffer and given for us. And then we have the shedding of blood for our sins on the cross. And as we do that, we're remembering. So a couple of things. It's interesting when you think about Jesus wanting us to remember him. He didn't say build a statue or a monument or have this icon picture. This was it. This is the only thing that he has given us to, as a memorial to remember him. This is it. And the whole thing that we have in communion or what we call communion is that it's another time to reflect on how amazing God's grace is, on how amazing our salvation is, on how amazing God is. It's, it's a time to reflect fully and completely on the message of the cross. And this is what we're to do often. And then to do that as a body of Christ it's amazing to be able to share that with one another because we're sharing that with Christ and we're remembering Him and we're thanking Him and we're enjoying Him and rejoicing in Him. And, and then we're doing that together. You know, we're celebrating this together. So there's something about communion with the body of Christ that's very special to be able to do that together. Another thing we see here is that communion was it it's not specified with all these details that it's to be given out by a certain person so communion it doesn't have to be a pastor doing it or a priest in a, another religion doing it or whatever it it's just for everybody you could do it at your home and that's the neat thing about communion all these specific examples and it's given 
for everybody is a, a time to remember the things that Christ did. It doesn't tell us how often we're to do that, so we can't make that a thing like this church is bad because they only do it this or we only do it this and they do it every day. And we have, that's not a thing. If you want to do it more, you can do it at home with your family. Seems like you should. Doesn't seem like that's a bad thing. Seems like that might be a thing to adopt into your family. It's just doing communion with your family. So he says in verse 26, As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So now there's, we're actually looking forward to something too. So communion, he says, proclaim, that's, um, that's like preaching. So communion is a visual message. It's not preaching for our ears, it's preaching for our eyes. And so we get a visual, we can see ourselves taking that communion, and it reminds us of the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, and we're remembering all those things. And as we remember all these things, look what he says, Till he comes. What that means is now we're also looking for the future. He is telling us we do this now, but there's going to be a time we're going to keep doing this until we're face to face with him. He's telling us here in communion that, that he's coming back. And we know that he's going to set up his kingdom here on earth. So now he brings the, the procedure down to then a personal application for us. And this is what we'll finish on. Verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Wow, that sounds really scary, doesn't it? So what does that mean? Sunday's going to come. Should I not take it? The key to understanding this is the context. So think about what was going on in the church. People were living for themselves and grossly living for themselves. That's actually completely opposite of what Paul taught them of what it means to be a Christian. And it's opposite of what Jesus demonstrated and taught them. So they're fully living for themselves, not caring about the things of God. Taking the things of God and using them to get drunk and to eat their own good food to the exclusion of other people. And then they're going to take communion. He's saying, if you are grossly living in sin, and yet you're taking the communion, which is a reminder of the sacrifice of Christ. So think about that. Christ sacrificed for us. He's called us to live in a similar manner. And we say no, but we're going to take the communion elements that remind us to live and walk like Christ. That's taking it in, a, I would say, a disingenuous manner. 
not an honest manner. Not considering the things of God, but you're still going to do the communion, but do it in a way where you're not acknowledging what it actually means. You're ignoring what it actually means. And I would say that's an epidemic in Christianity. In other words, I'm a Christian, but I just do my own thing. Don't tell me what to do. Don't speak to me about any change in direction or denying myself. None of that, but give me, that, give me those crackers and give me that juice. He's saying that's a problem. And again, we have to understand there's no speaking of perfection. There's no speaking of merit here. What it's being talking about is someone who is clearly defiant to the things of God and doesn't care yet is acting like they do. He says, don't do that. Better to not take it. Better to deal with your problem instead of acting like you've dealt with it and not deal with it. Hopefully that makes sense. In verse 29, he said, For whoever eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment on himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So there's the danger inherent in that. So there's a, a danger inherent in saying you're a Christian, but denying everything about Christianity. And then let me add one more thing. Not just denying everything about Christianity, primarily the things of the gospel, but then also defiling them by sinning on top of them, by using the things of God to sin. He's, he's saying you're bringing judgment on yourself. So think about this. So you're taking communion, it's being passed around, and whoever's doing it is explaining, this is the body of Christ that was given for your sins. This is the blood of Christ that was given for your sins. And you're sinning and not caring, and you're taking that. When you take that, you're saying you agree with that. You're saying, I receive the remembrance of what Christ did. You're saying that that's important to me. I acknowledge that. But then you actually don't care about that at all. He says you're bringing judgment on yourself. The judgment here is corrective judgment. Corrective judgment. In verse 30, he says, For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. That means died. So he's actually saying in Corinth, there are people there that are weak, sick, and dead. Because of this behavior. So, can that happen now? Does that happen? 
It's going to make Sunday really exciting. (laughs) It can happen. I don't know to what extent. I don't know. You know, it's it's hard to pinpoint those things. It does seem like the early church, like Ananias and Sapphira, right in the beginning of the church, they were lying about how much they were giving, and they dropped dead in church just like that. So possibly it it may have been a little different then because the church was just starting, and the need for the church to start off in the right direction was so important before Scripture was able to establish all that. But I do believe that that does happen. If someone continually rejects the things of God, but yet acts like they're doing the things of God. And here's why. One, it's actually for the person. It's an act of mercy for the person. That say, they just died. To protect them from continually hurting themselves and hurting other people. So sometimes you get someone that's come out of a certain background, say a really heavy drug background, and they get saved. And for whatever reason, they just can't seem to shake it, their habit, their addiction. And sometimes God will just take them home as an act of mercy, realizing they're going to just live in this life of misery and they're going to hurt other people and God will take them. So I do believe that's in play, but it is a challenging scripture. So in verse 31, he says, For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. He's telling us we should individually keep a short account with God. So not let our life take on a a direction where we're continually drifting away, but we need to watch, hey, man, I'm I'm sort of drifting. I'm getting cold in my heart. I'm I'm starting to love the things of the world more. I'm I'm thinking about sin more and I'm uh, disconnecting from the things I used to do. I, I need to watch that. I need to repent to keep a short account with God. He's saying, if you guys would have taken care of that in your church, then it wouldn't have escalated to this Extent, but even more importantly, individually. So then he says in verse 32, but when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. So God corrects us, not punishes us. He's already taken our punishment, but he loves us so much he'll correct us so that we keep on the right track. Verse 33, therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. So simply, if you're that hungry, or you're going to trample somebody to get to the good stuff, just eat before you come. Brahms is right there. You get five hamburgers for like five bucks. Go there, 
pig out, and then come here and just eat a little bit. It's practical advice. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this evening. I thank you for my brothers and sisters who have come and those listening online. I pray that you bless them with the word and the word would take root in their heart to produce a hundredfold fruit, Lord. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great night. And we'll see you on Saturday at 11.